Steve Lowenthal has a new book out, Dance of Death, The Life of John Fahey, American Guitarist. And I have Steve Lowenthal on the line. Hi, Steve. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Now, I've known John Fahey for quite a while. In folk circles, he's regarded as an innovator, bringing the acoustic guitar to the concert stage. Was that the impetus for the book? In some ways, yes, uh, and in some ways, no. In the, it, in the sense of him being an innovator on the acoustic guitar and bringing music to the main stage, I absolutely, he was the, the pioneer in solo instrumental acoustic music. And in terms of folk music, I don't think John ever considered himself part of any folk music or folk movement. In fact, he was pretty vehemently against being categorized in that department. Although, uh, you know, because he played acoustic guitar, certainly during the 60s and whatnot, he found himself in those circles. But as his wife Jan said in the book at one point, that she thinks that he chose the wrong instrument because it always led back to sort of folk music, and that's how people heard the acoustic guitar at that time. Why? Why did he not like being labeled? Well, certainly his peers in that movement. Uh, a lot of the folk music in the 60s was really based around politics and civil rights and, and social movements. John's music was about a, a sort of personal, existential, psychological issues and really sort of dealing with those personal problems of his. He really didn't have any interest in, in the social movements of the time. Uh, and in terms of, you know, from a musical standpoint, his pieces were long and strange and sometimes would have tape splices and music concrete and things that none of his peers would ever even attempt. What he was trying to do, he felt, was severely different than something like, say, Pete Seeger was trying to do or whatnot. He kind of felt like people didn't get him. And uh, certainly uh, that was the case in the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s. It's a fascinating story of John Fahey, and though he didn't want to be categorized as folk music, it seemed like he he did explore the blues. The blues was an incredible influence to his music. Uh, the blues, certainly from an emotional standpoint, I think uh, had a huge effect on his music. I think what he liked about artists like Skip James and whatnot was this desperation and the anguish that, that came across in their music. Because certainly at the time when he was a teenager in the 50s, there wasn't any pop music that sort of represented that sort of angst or ennui. There wasn't any sort of, you know, punk rock or something like that. There was sort of angry music of the suburbs. So, you know, when he heard the blues, he heard that sort of anger and that desperation, and that's what he really related to it. But he never tried to, to sing or play 12 bars or do a one four five progression that just you know wasn't really in his vocabulary as a musician, even though he certainly took a lot of signifiers from the blues and that culture, absolutely. He did reject the folk label, the blues label, New Age, he hated. How did he react to the American primitive label that he was categorized as? Well, he came up with the term American primitive. American primitive, to him, meant untrained or self-taught. And that's how he learned guitar. He learned guitar by sitting around and trying to play country and bluegrass records and whatnot, and trying to pick his favorite songs off from the radio. So he wasn't a school musician. He wasn't trained. He couldn't read music. He couldn't notate music. So he called himself an American primitive. And I think he liked that. It's sort of an odd misnomer because you know his music is so complex. 
but sort of deceptively so. I mean, in some ways, it's very simple and slow uh, and elegant in places, but uh, sort of the ideas that he was working with were, were far more complex than the average guitar players. As much as he rejected the folk label, he was, it seems to me, instrumental in a folk revival in the way that he's revived careers of blues artists. Absolutely. In terms of him finding Skip James and going and finding Book of White, what he was looking for, I think, was more actually like father figures than he was really looking for uh, to manage careers or whatnot. In fact, it was only about one year that he actually worked with Skip James and Book of White and then kind of found them too difficult to deal with and then sort of just went back on his own way. But uh, again, the music meant so much to him that he was just so focused on discovering lost sides by these guys, by people like Skip James and Blind Lily Johnson and stuff, that he would just stop at nothing to, to discover this music because there was no other way to hear it. So I think he was really passionate about folk and blues music, certainly about bluegrass, certainly about classical music as well. And his music, I feel, is a hybrid of all of those different influences and sort of combines in a way that is unique unto John. I feel as though he felt he never got that sort of appreciation for being such an open-minded musician because during his lifetime, music was so purest pursuit in a lot of ways. People who like rock and roll, they like rock and roll. People who like folk music, they like folk music. People who like the blues, like the blues. I think in the 21st century, listeners hear all of this music and put it all together themselves and create this sort of history of America, of all these different musics and whatnot. And I think John sort of personified that in a way. John's music transcends those boundaries. Bucka White, Skip James, and many blues artists recorded in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and basically were forgotten in American culture. How did John Fahey discover those artists? He was just one of these guys that was looking for something different. Uh, when he was in high school in the 50s, what he heard on the radio didn't connect with him, like Rosemary Clooney and whatnot. That didn't speak to him. Growing up in suburban Maryland in the 1950s, you know, he was sort of on the racial divide of the North and the South, in a time when those regional distinctions had meant so much more, even. So his family got him into bluegrass music, and that's how he started playing guitar, listening to country and bluegrass. He would start you know, record hunting for these country and bluegrass records. His high school friend, Dick Spotswood, the two of them would go record hunting together. And Spotswood was a huge blues fan. So originally, say he would just give all of his blues records to Spotswood because he was only interested in country and bluegrass. And then one day when they were checking out records, Spotswood played Wide Willie Johnson's uh, Praise Lord, I'm Satisfied, and checked the condition of the record and say he was just overwhelmed by what he heard. And literally from that moment forth, that's all he was fascinated with is that old country blues stuff. And he spent the next few years just driving around the South, knocking on doors and impoverished towns, looking for these records or for records that he didn't even know existed. You know, the thrill of the hunt really galvanized him and, and pushed him forward in that pursuit. And he was he was pretty myopic in, in, that, in that pursuit, and he was really successful. And he discovered a lot of records that no one had discovered before, and he helped catalog and distribute those records. And a lot of the songs and the artists that we know in sort of nowadays in the blues canon their legacy is directly linked to, to John's rediscovery of their work. 
John Fahey was playing guitar at this time, and he started his own independent record label, Tacoma Records. Was that because nobody would sign him? I don't even think he was attempting to be signed. I mean, I think it was more of a sense of he had this urgency, uh, this music that he wanted to create, and he sort of knew that instrumental solo guitar music wasn't really a popular endeavor. Through one of his high school friends, he got turned on to uh, Harry Parch, who is sort of avant-garde composer, who used to put out his own records. And in the 1950s, there's pretty much only uh, Sun Ra and Harry Parch were the only artists that were releasing their own records. But Harry Parch got on John's radar so early in the 1950s that he realized that, hey, I could just borrow a couple hundred bucks and go down to a pressing plant and get 100 copies made. And John's first record that he pressed up himself, he made 100 copies of his debut album. And it took him three years to, to move through those 100 copies just selling them at his all-night gas station job and, and dropping them in a couple local thrift stores and whatnot. So I don't think there was any sort of impetus of commercial success or to get picked up by somebody. I think it was more just to document what he was doing, and he was so excited about it that you know he wasn't he wasn't prepared to wait for anyone else to give their acceptance. It was like a really American concept in a way, sort of like punk rock way before. You know, that was a concept that anyone had even really considered. But there was Johnny was putting out his own records and putting his money where his mouth is and not waiting for anyone else's approval. And it was a really radical move, and it certainly paid off in the long run. I'm speaking with Steve Lowenthal, the author of a new biography of John Fahey. Let's listen to John Fahey from that first recording of 1959, The Legend of Blind Joe Death. In Christ, there is no East or West.
I'm speaking with Steve Lowenthal, author of the new biography of John Fahey, Dance of Death. Why Dance of Death? As a title? Yes. Well, John, he always said that he liked to put the word death in the title of his records because he thought, uh, you know, that books with the word death in it sold more. I was sort of taking John's <laughs> own advice. <laughs> He also had a, uh, I guess it was a pseudonym, Blind Joe Death, that he, he performed under. Was that for the same reason? It was for different reasons, sort of. Uh, Blind Joe Death was, he never performed under that name publicly, only on record. And it was sort of a way for him to explore the blues without feeling as though he was co-opting them as a white suburbanite. He knew all too well that being a white suburban guy, you could not authentically play the blues, or at least not the blues that he was interested in playing. He couldn't you know, recreate that sort of anguish and, and magic. But he had his own sort of anguish and, and magic to sort of explore the sort of ennui of the suburbs or what have you. Um, and I think Blind Joe Death was sort of a pseudonym he concocted that was his fantasy of listening to all these old blues records. Well, if I was an old blues man, I'd be Blind Joe Death. <laughs> and, you know, it was a teenage construct. He was 17 when he made this record. Um, and he only made 100 copies. It was really just for him and his friends. So I think Blind Joe Death was, it was two parts. One, it was a way for him to explore the blues and the relative safety of the sort of that, that archetype, that mythos. But also as a way just to sort of express his, his sense of humor. Blind Joe Death is sort of an over-the-top kind of play on those blues idioms, all these old blind so-and-so and whatnot. This is just his, his funny take on it uh, in his mind. It's a strange sense of humor because a lot of people thought that Blind Joe Death was a real blues musician. Oh, absolutely. He loved messing with people. I mean, his liner notes were filled with veiled references and jokes to his friends and and total lies and, and, and wild stories that were not rooted in reality whatsoever. John really liked pulling the leg and the perceptions of his audiences a lot. And uh, he did a record in 1957 called Voice of the Turtle. And uh, the first uncertain un, un versions of it, there's literally just him taking his favorite tracks from the 1920s and playing over them on top of them pretending like that was a Blind Joe Death song or something like that, even though it wasn't his music. Later in his life, he would have, certainly on a, on, on John Fahey's Greatest Hits Volume 2, originally he had a, a guitar player, uh, Charlie Schmidt, re-record all of his old pieces as John Fahey, and he submitted those masters for his greatest hits because it felt like Charlie could do a better job. One of his albums, Live from Tasmania, even had fake applause. And not only that, though, it's a phenomenal record, and the playing is, is top-notch. It was a pretty tour-de-force performance. You know, the irony was that he recorded all of that in the studio and then added in the audience applause later, so it's not even really a live album. <laughs> but for him, I think it, uh, it pleased him because they could finally have the live show he always wanted, even though it wasn't really live. <laughs> John Fahey had recorded over 40 albums and one of his most successful albums was his Christmas music album. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first people to exploit Christmas music, and it's oh, yeah. and it started a whole bunch of Christmas albums. Oh sure, yeah, sort of fascinating. In a lot of ways, John Fahey is really this interested in avant-garde and tape splicing and, and music concrete and all of these sort of 
wild, you know, non-commercial ideas. But then one day he was in a record store and he saw a giant box of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. And uh, he asked the clerk about it. And the clerk says, oh, yeah, we sell these every year. And John said to himself, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so he recorded all his versions of Christmas songs and did sort of the John Fahey Christmas album on, on solo guitar. I mean, that's a concept that had never really been done before, Christmas music on, on solo instrumental guitar. And he really struck a chord with everybody. And he certainly and, wasn't a religious man. Actually, he was very interested in religion. He went to church pretty much his whole life, except for the times where he was involved in sort of Eastern religions. But uh, no, he was very interested in religion. And uh, he grew up uh, at, you know, in high school. He spent a lot of his free time at the Episcopal Church and talking religion with the adults and whatnot. So he was always fascinated with the religion. So... It was a really interesting sort of marriage of his interests, you know, his guitar playing, his, his interest in religion, the spiritual, and sort of combined with the commercial aspect. It was just, it was a home run. So, And the liner notes to his Christmas album are so fascinating because he really goes against sort of the traditions of Christmas, talking about how it's anti-commercialism and, you know, how Christmas tree is a pagan thing and we shouldn't celebrate the commercial divine egg and just went on this whole rant against the whole commercialism of Christmas and whatnot. And that really came from his reverence to the spiritual and how you know, fascinated he was by Christianity. Um, but yeah, that Christmas record was, you know, it was a home run in every way, and uh, it, it, it sort of introduced John to a whole new audience. Through John Fahey's Tacoma record label, he also discovered some artists taking uh, solo instrumental music, uh, and I'm speaking specifically, I guess, of Leo Kotke and George Winston, and they credit their career to John Fahey. Oh, absolutely. It's hard to sort of to imagine, but before John Fahey, there really wasn't instrumental music outside of sort of classical or jazz. Solo instrumental music, uh, whether it be solo piano like George Winston or solo guitar like Leo Kaki, both of whom rose to commercial success far beyond Fahey ever did. Fahey not only was you know, an inspiration to them in terms of forming their music, but was the only person that would give their music a chance. I mean, nobody, nobody else wanted to put out Leo Kaki or George Winston albums, but Fahey saw the potential, and later on those guys both went to become multi-platinum stars of their respective worlds and whatnot. To this day, both of them are huge admirers of Fahey and, and readily credit his vision as being integral to their success. George Winston, of course, was the best-selling artist for the uh, Wyndham Hill record label, which created the new age genre of music. I thought it was interesting in your book, even though John Fahey does not sing, all his guitar pieces are instrumental, you were able to analyze the songs, I suppose because of the song titles, which, which are so unusual. Oh, absolutely. One of the great joys of being a John Fahey fan is really pouring through the liner notes and the pictures of all of his albums. One could really construct a sort of hallucinogenic version of a, of a basic biography through reading all of the liner notes to each of his albums. And uh, they're fascinating and intricate and bizarre. And uh, you know, no other artist that I could think of reveals so much of themselves in their work, especially in their instrumental work. If you look at, again, the voice of the turtle, there are pictures of John's actual ex-girlfriends in there, of his friends, of his family, of his colleagues, of 
Tacoma Park, the Tacoma Park funeral home. Uh, there's a picture of in there. Going through all of his records, you really get a sense of who this guy was and where he was from and, and sort of what his life was like. You do not get that from Leo Kotke or George Winston. Those records could be from anywhere at any time. There's really no other context besides the music, uh, whereas John created this entirely rich world of text, of images, and of music. And his records were like these really strange sort of autobiographical documents. Steve Lowenthal is on the line. His book, Dance of Death, just released, The Life of John Fahey, American Guitarist. I got the feeling, reading the book, that he was a very troubled human being. It had a lot of demons. It's amazing that he did have a career in concerts because he didn't really enjoy performing. Oh, he had terrible stage fright, and uh, he never got over it. And so it sort of became this weird sort of paradox where... Here's this guy who, he's a private guy, he likes playing at home, he's not really a people person, and yet he sort of found himself having to make his career by playing live shows. And uh, his response to it was he ended up sort of resenting the audience to a huge degree and sort of blamed them for putting him through this. And uh, he would get really drunk. He would become really abusive towards his audience and make fun of them and ramble off about weird topics. You know, 10, 20 minutes, and that's not really what a lot of concert goers wanted from a John Fahey concert. They wanted to be dabbled by guitar playing. They didn't really want to hear see this drunk guy lambast them and question their politics or whatnot. That, that was his reputation. I mean, I don't know anybody who saw a John Fahey concert doesn't have a story about him stopping in mid-song and going to the bathroom. I have to admit, I booked a show with him. And if I had known half the things that I read in your book, I probably would not have booked him because of that. In fact, I'll just tell a quick story. I I, I booked him on Miami Beach at the Colony Theater many years ago, and I set up a phone interview with the, the Miami Herald. He was supposed to be someplace at a certain time, and he blew it off. And I asked him when he finally landed in Miami before the show, I said, John, I'm trying to sell tickets here. Why couldn't you show up for the interview? He looks at me and he goes, you have the most beautiful brown eyes. And that was, that was the end of that conversation. Uh, there's this one uh, story in the book where Joni Mitchell's manager came to see him play in the 60s and was, you know, was interested in John opening up for Joni. And you know, his shows were such a catastrophe at the time. He would just put out cigarettes on his guitar string and get all polluted. But, you know, he certainly did not get that gig. It's sort of sad that he sort of alienated himself to audiences in that way. But I'm sure there were other people that came for the sort of Andy Kaufman-like spectacle of, hey, is this guy even going to make it through the set? What's going to happen now? Uh, that's, a, that's a different kind of, of performance, but you know, certainly something to witness. And uh, people were, were, weren't used to it. They didn't know how to deal with an artist that didn't want to be sold. And it, it created a lot of friction for him and, and the people around him. I think everyone always wanted to help John Faye. Everyone I talked to in the book, throughout his life, everyone was always sort of rooting for John and wanting him to succeed despite his attitude. Another aspect of the book which has to be brought up is John's mental illness. He uh, was, was alcoholic, as you said, but he spent time being homeless and living in shelter. I had no idea that a successful artist like him would, would sink that low. 
It's crazy because no one really knew at that time. The early 90s, around 1992, 1993, John Fahey was living basically in welfare motels in Salem, Oregon, and was pawning all of this stuff and was basically homeless. And then other times even living in the, you know, the Gospel Union mission and just sleeping on cots. It's interesting because while he certainly didn't have any money left, there were plenty of people who were willing to help him or you know, would provide for him uh, if need be, and he sort of rejected them. Again, he had a wife at the time in the early 90s, and he just divorced her, and she, she didn't want to get divorced. She wanted to stay and take care of him, and he pushed her away. So I think John kind of wanted to be alone and wanted to be sort of outside of society. He had such a difficult time existing within it. He was really unhappy basically his whole life. As a teenager, he was a really unhappy teenager, really depressed, felt really alienated and isolated, and I don't think that ever really left him. And I think a lot of the uh, issues from his youth and, and uh, from him as a kid just stayed with him as an adult, and he never really got over any of that stuff. It's a sad story in some ways. But in other ways, he sort of chose his own path in that regard, even though it's not necessarily the path that most of us would, would choose. It's certainly one in which, uh, as an artist, as an individual, he never compromised. And the book goes into detail about his career was revived twice. Uh, his final comeback, he didn't even, did, did he play guitar? He played, well, I don't know, his last show, he didn't even play guitar. Again, by the time he was sort of rediscovered in the 90s, uh, he was sort of rediscovered by a alternative music culture and even the more avant-garde side of that at the time. So uh, people like Sonic Youth and bands like the No Neck Blues bands that were sort of this experimental, ad hoc, improvised collective and whatnot. John was really attracted to the freedom of these musicians, that they could play what they wanted. They didn't have to play songs. They didn't have to play structured music, that they just sort of followed their intuition and wherever the music took them. And that's really what John always wanted to do. And I think that's why he resented being labeled folk or new age or any of these things, because what he really wanted to do is explore music unfettered, you know, without any constraints. By the time the 90s came around, he had these new younger people, and they were huge John Fahey fans. So that was the first time he really felt understood and appreciated for his contributions to music or what he felt he was trying to do which was never about finger-picking guitar, but really more about this sort of existential ennui mood pieces and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, the 90s were really productive for him as a musician in a totally different way, yet he did everything he could to reject his audiences from the 60s and 70s, those who came looking for guitar playing. They weren't finding finger-picking. It was basically him playing electric guitar with a ton of reverb, really slow, and towards the end he was he was playing keyboard in No Neck Blues Band and doing weird improvisational sort of poetry pieces. Again, this wasn't really what any of his fans were looking for, but he was really pleased to have the freedom to sort of follow his muse, however odd that may be. <laughs> have you ever met him? I never met Don Fahey, and one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because I was never in the same room with him. He had so much charisma and such a huge presence from what everyone told me that I wanted to be able to sort of be objective. Did your opinion change of John Fahey after doing the research? In some ways, I knew John was always a really troubled man. 
uh, and a really brilliant artist. Uh, my research certainly confirmed his brilliance as an artist, and history is, has proven that. So many generations of people are so fascinated with his work. Uh, I live in New York. Every 20-something-year-old hipster kid in Brooklyn would be embarrassed to not know John Fahey. I mean, he's part of the canon. I mean, it's like saying John Coltrane or something. I mean, he's one of those central figures in modern music that you, know, you need to know if you know anything about 20th century American music. But I think I felt really validated by that through, throughout research in the book, how important of a figure he was to American culture. In terms of his personal life, you know, I never thought he was a likable guy. Um, and that was pretty confirmed in the book, too. I don't know. Yeah, John's a paradox. And uh, I, I think it's tough to come to any sort of, like, full conclusion about who he was. I think he was a lot of different people to a lot of, to, to everybody he met. And uh, he certainly was large and eccentric and, and troubled. So I think there are people that met John Fahey and he was sweet and kind and good to them. I think other people saw John Fahey when he was selfish and mean and, and internal. But, uh, but, but a really fascinating artist and a really fascinating musician and a really fascinating individual. Steve Lowenthal, author of Dance of Death, The Life of John Fahey, American Guitarist. Steve, that was great. Thank you so much. Oh, Michael, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about John and his legacy. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure.